it is to be young. But you, you don't know what it is to be old. Someday, you'll be saying the same thing. Time takes away, so the story is told. Hello, I am Robert Trogdon. And I am Kirk Carnot. And welcome to Master the 40. Tonight, broadcasting takes a giant leap backward. And in this particular exploration of the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, we managed to pull a very timely story out of the hat because today we are going to talk about a piece that doesn't get a lot of attention but should called uh, Pat Hobby and Orson Welles. Our story by F. Scott Fitzgerald is, as I warned you, one of the strangest ever told. Let's get on with it. Fitzgerald, over the course of his career, attempted a few series. The most famous of them are the Basil and Josephine stories. He also tried a series sort of related called the Gwen stories. But maybe the most controversial one are the 17 short stories from the end of his career called the Pat Hobby stories. So Robert, who is Pat Hobby and why are these stories so controversial? Pat Hobby is a down-on-his-luck screenwriter who's a product of old Hollywood, and he sort of lives, has a very precarious hand-to-mouth existence, working on scripts, cleaning up script, changing, you know, his contributions will be changing Scarlet to Red and Get Out of Here to Scram. But he's, he's sort of a throwback to an earlier time in Hollywood, but he's he is, as described by Walter Winchell, uh, and the only mention I could find of Pat Hobby, a heel. And it is a very lowbrow humor, almost slapstick, that Pat Hobby gets into in his various adventures. There's a lot of confused identity. There's a lot of high in the face. He lives off of the studio. He lives off of the commissary. He, you know, on the buffet tables on film sets. He steals clothes from wardrobe. He's a Hollywood anti-hero. If you're looking at what Fitzgerald is doing in addition to this, and he's working on The Last Tycoon at the same time with Monroe Starr as sort of the romantic hero of Hollywood, Pat Hobby is the antithesis of Monroe Star. Yeah, it's an interesting connection. It's almost impossible to talk about Pat Hobby without talking about Love of the Last Tycoon or The Last Tycoon. There's a lot of controversy over what exactly we should call that posthumously published novel. And part of the relationship there is financial because in uh, the fall of 1939, when Fitzgerald wrote, started writing these short stories, he was not being employed regularly by the Hollywood studios as he had since the summer of 1937. And in order to finance the writing of the novel, he would crank out a Pat Hobby story a month and send it to Arnold Gingrich, who is the editor of Esquire. And basically for $250 a month, Gingrich would accept whatever was sent in. I think some of the stories, he was maybe a little more reluctant 
to to submit. But we need to step back just a second, though, and talk about Esquire and Fitzgerald's relationship to it and how the magazine changed his writing or he changed his writing to accommodate the magazine. So, Robert, tell us a little bit about Esquire and, and how do you see Fitzgerald's writing for that magazine different than what he did for, say, the Saturday Evening Post? Well, in terms of like Fitzgerald's relationship to magazine, uh, I think his relationship to Esquire is the second most important after the post. And I think that Esquire is only after Saturday Evening Post as as output, uh, just in the number of stories. Esquire was formed by a man named Arnold Gingrich of Chicago, and it's variously termed men's fashion magazine and others. Gingrich's started the magazine in the fall of 1933, and it started as a quarterly, but in then 34, it became a monthly. And um, his first big catch as far as uh, contributors was Ernest Hemingway, who agreed to contribute a letter, an essay to each month for a set fee. It's really interesting group of writers that he gets to contribute because you get John Dos Passos, you get John Harriman. I have to give a shout out to John Harriman for the wife. In this issue with uh, Pat Hobby and Orson Welles, there's a series of uh, sonnets by Langston Hughes. So very interesting people, but it's all about luxury goods, the good life. It's almost you. And then you have like the pinup girls. You have all of these illustrations of very scantily clad women in various states. And uh, there's a direct line from Esquire to Playboy because uh, Hugh Hefner in the 50s was working with at Esquire in Chicago uh, when he broke off to start Playboy. But it's it's a very interesting magazine to do in the height of the depression because it sort of promote this luxury, luxurious lifestyle, good food, good drinking, good clothing, good cars and things of that nature. I love that you brought up the pinups because our colleague Jennifer Nolan did a, a hilarious piece for us uh, in the recent Fitzgerald Society newsletter where she talked about doing a deep dive into the Esquire archive using paper copies. And every copy she could get through interlibrary loan that she would go through, she would discover that the page right before the crack up had been ripped out of the magazine. And I don't know if you ever had this experience, but in the 80s when I was in college and we used to go to college libraries and kind of dig around in the big bound volumes, you know, I would always try to go find the uh, issue of Time and Newsweek from 1975, the same week where Bruce Springsteen was on simultaneous covers. And you could never find those covers because people had gone in there with the old ruler and just ripped them right out of there. And so Jennifer's whole piece is about, well, were were people really this into the crack up that they're ripping out the crack up? And what she discovered was the recto page was always ripped out. And it turned out that it's the pinups, the people in the 40s and 50s were ripping the pinups still out of out of copies of Esquires out of the libraries. So if you look online and and I know Robert you you are a subscriber to Esquire so you can do your research in the archives. You can go in there and you can still see it's very bizarre to see crack up essays which are you know about as intimate and personally revealing as possible um you know 
facing a page with a pinup on it. Well, and the, the crack up is probably the most important work that Fitzgerald published with Esquire. This is 1936. Gingrich sort of provided Fitzgerald with the opportunity to do something that, say, Saturday Evening Post would not allow him to do with these confessional essays after Tender is the Night. Gingrich was really much more open to letting uh, the contributors do what they want. I doubt any other magazine would let Hemingway write as much about sport fishing as as Gingrich allowed him to do. Yeah, they were definitely selling the author's personality. And I think one of the interesting things about coming out of the crack up is Fitzgerald started doing a series of short stories it, well, it's just not really clear whether they're short stories or whether they are confessional essays, uh, author's mother, author's house. They really are experimental. The one right before the Pat Hobby stories starts, uh, The Lost Decade appeared in the December 39. I, I always am amazed at what Fitzgerald is able to do in that story. I think Esquire really gave him an opportunity to reinvent himself. His style became much leaner. The stories became much shorter, much more dialogue driven than anything in the Saturday Evening Post. You know, I think he felt himself that the magazine made him become a little more hard boiled than he naturally felt he was, but that was the style in the depression. You know, he couldn't write like a Saturday evening post writer anymore. Lost decade is, I think to me, that's one of his top 10 stories. And I'm a huge fan of that. And both uh, financing Finnegan is another one that yeah. kind of deals with his money, perpetual money issues. So I think the magazine just gave him a freedom. And, you know, when he gets into the fall of 1939, he's in as rough a position sort of financially and emotionally as he had ever been in. He had, he had spent about a year and a half from mid-37 to early 39 working at MGM for $1,000 a week. It allowed him to pay off his debts. It was a frustrating period because he was not suited for writing for the movies. And we can talk about that in a second. But MGM let him go in January 1939. And he had to scrap around. And it just got to be by summer that he ended up breaking with his agent of 20 years, almost 20 years, Harold Ober, over loans. So he was really in desperate straits by September 1939, when he was starting to write these. And, you know, the fact that Gingrich basically put him on a stipend to help get him through in hopes that he could pull together the love of the last tycoon. One of the things is Gingrich saved the Pat Hobby stories because there is the collection that was issued, I think, in 62. Right. Uh, and Gingrich edited and um, or collected yeah. and provided the introduction. I was looking today to see if any Fitzgerald scholar actually reviewed the collection when it came out. And Andrew Turnbull is the only one I could find of note and dismissed it as like, this is not the Fitzgerald we want. And, you know, in, in, in his introduction, Gingrich has a great line where he says, people assume that because the stories are about a hack, they must be hack work. And so part of the legend surrounding the Pat Hobby stories, because again, it's Kind of the perception that has dogged a lot of his commercial fiction is that because they were written for money, they can't possibly be good. I think they are funny in a lot of ways. You mentioned the humor. 
They seem to be inspired a lot by Charlie Chaplin, whose name pops up in this story and the Keystone Cops. It is a slip on the banana peel type plot sometimes, but there's also a deep scorching satire to them that I think is hugely influential in the years that come in in how Hollywood begins dramatizing itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the same. uh, It's a year after a a novel that we've mentioned before, Day of the Locust, which is uh, basically also scorching of Hollywood and the pretension. You got uh, then What Makes Sammy Run with Bud Schulberg, who was associated with Fitzgerald in in Hollywood and the the famous Dartmouth trip uh, to get material for the Winter Carnival. Bud Schulberg, he would always tell the story of how he and Fitzgerald got hired to co-write this script about the Dartmouth Winter Carnival. And this is only a few months before he starts Pat Hobby. And you can sort of see, you know, where some of the inspiration is coming from in these stories because they got on the plane and Fitzgerald fell off the wagon and they got to Dartmouth in very bad shape. And were immediately fired. And there's actually one of the Pat Hobby stories, one of the later ones that involves him going to a college. It's called Pat Hobby's College Days. One of the controversies that surrounds the Pat Hobby stories is the relationship between Fitzgerald and Pat Hobby. So let me ask you this, Robert, do you see Pat Hobby as a sort of projection of Fitzgerald in Hollywood, do you think he's writing about himself, how he feels at being a uh, hired gun? Partially, we think about Fitzgerald in Hollywood as that 38 to 1940 period, but Fitzgerald is involved in the in the film industry since the early 20s. And one of my scholarly dreams is to discover copy intact of grit which is the silent film that fitzgerald wrote in hollywood it's about gangsters that no print supposedly exists now so in a way fitzgerald is in uh, and the th- and the movie business used to be centered out in long island anyway in the 1920s so yeah he's he is very much fascinated by films he's fascinated by actresses so you go look at Jacob's Ladder uh, you look at Rosemary Hoyt and Tender is the Night in a way he I think he does see that he's out of place in the Hollywood of the late 1930s uh, like Pat but I don't think Fitzgerald is ever as desperate as Pat Hobby is in the stories so there is a level of projection but I think it's it's more of this is what I can be. This is what I can become, but I haven't quite reached that point yet. It's definitely anxiety. And it's interesting because all of the stories mention almost all of them in the opening lines that Pat is 49 years old. There's even one of the stories that's set two years previously to the others, and he's 49 in that one too. And, you know, anybody who's read Fitzgerald at all knows he was sort of obsessed with age and aging and, you know, the famous line in Great Gatsby where in the middle of the big blow up at the Plaza Hotel, Nick Carraway goes, oh, it's my 30th birthday. And, you know, I'm condemned to hanging out with men going bald with briefcases for the rest of my life. (laughs) Thinning enthusiasms, thinning hair. So I do think that he was looking with Pat Hobby into the future and saying, what, what what is there in my 40s for me 
in Los Angeles. And of course, it's out of that frustration that he begins to come up with the idea for The Love of the Last Tycoon, which I don't know. How do you feel about that novel, Robert? There are beautiful passages in it. I don't think he could have finished it with the plan that he had with the great level of labor unrest and the the strike. There are episodes that stay with me all the time with Monroe Starr in the in the plane talking about building a railroad and the and you just pick the a spot and like and the pilot's like, how do you pick the spot? So you just pick. Yeah. And if you say that's the right way, then that's going to be the right way. And uh, Star saying, you know, I am the unity. I am the control. But it's hard for me to judge a posthumous work that's unfinished uh, because it's just, there's beautiful passages in there, but I think it's a little bit sprawling and it's awkward. You know, this is, you know, you get, this is Cecilia's point of view now. It's definitely a rough draft. And there are sort of Frankenstein passages where you feel the stitches of him kind of going back and forth. Again, to me, it's amazing to think that he was writing these works sort of interchangeably. And Gingrich talks about the fact that typically what would happen over the fall of 1939 on into the spring of 40 was that Fitzgerald would hit the weekend and he would would crank out a Pat's hobby story on a Saturday, revise it on a Sunday, and then send the bill to Esquire basically on Monday when he needed the money. And so they're much shorter, uh, you know, maybe 3,000 words at the most. And that's, that's less than a third than most of his Saturday evening post stories. Well, you can almost tell that he he gets the setup in in our story of the old studio head having a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, because Orson Welles, the radical, is showing up on this at the studio, and it's Pat Pat in a fake beard uh, that uh, the makeup man has put on him uh, to play this joke. To really appreciate this story, there are two people we have to bring in. One is Irving Thalberg, who died in 1936, who is the inspiration for Monroe Star. Fitzgerald glamorized Thalberg as a pioneer, but a pioneer in corporation. You know the way that he the way that he uh, made an assembly line out of movies, which totally to me goes contrary to his whole complaint about Hollywood. Which and there, this is a line from the Crack Up where he says, "The worst thing about movies is it downgraded art to the low gear of collaboration." Hollywood famously devalued the actual writing to where Monkeys with Underwoods was the sort of reference to them. So the idea that you would have a corporate boss be the visionary, but I think what's different there is Fitzgerald imagined Thalberg as as that creative that that creative vision and that would he would be putting his personal stamp on the corporation. And in the end he's supposed to be crushed between labor unrest and corporate interests. Um and, you know, we could argue today whether that sort of prediction of what the creative spirit would become, to me, it doesn't read very contemporary, because if you think of Monroe Star as the death knell for people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, it just doesn't ring true. I mean, those guys can do whatever they want. They can take pictures of their genitalia and stay in, stay in office or smoke weed on TV and still be it. But the flip side of that is Orson Welles. The, the important thing I think to remember about the story is that Fitzgerald 
Fitzgerald was dead before Citizen Kane. So we are really dealing with a pre-Citizen Kane Orson Welles. And I'm just wondering, what what do you think the uh, ultimate point of this story? Why did, why did Fitzgerald write this about Orson Welles? Who is this man? Welles at the, at the time, like in the late 30s, Wells was the wonderkind. He is the he is the brash. He is the young genius who had made his name in the theater, made his name in radio. And you know, in New York, he's putting on, you know, right before this, he puts on a a contemporary dress, Julius Caesar, that's well received. He puts on Macbeth with an all-black cast. I mean, he is sort of the radical in the theater uh 1938 he has war of the worlds broadcast which he's which he's quite famous for and and one quick aside the only reference i can find that fitzgerald makes to wells is in 38 when he's trying to get harold ober to place a sketch that sheila graham has written with the radio and then he says and and ober can't place it anywhere and then in november he says just scrap it the Orson Welles radio thing has made it extraneous. But Hollywood is always looking for talent. And so Wells had been lured out to Hollywood by this extravagant RKO contract, which was just outrageous at the time. And RKO was a little bit more of a radical studio than MGM was. And Wells was working on two projects that never came to fruition. One was an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And he had done it on the radio, but he never he never got it filmed. And the other was something called uh, Smiler with a Knife. And so the, the, the newspapers are all filled with all like Hedda Hopper, Sheila Graham, uh, Walter Winchell, all of these gossip columnists are always talking about what Wells is doing and how work is pro- progressing, but the work never goes anywhere. And at the time that Fitzgerald's writing the story, Wells had done nothing in Hollywood except be there and disrupting this old order of uh, these these old time screenwriters. And the thing about it is that Wells will end up revolutionizing film, but it's going to take a while for people to understand how he revolutionized it. RKO offered him two things that were unheard of in Hollywood. One was 150000 for the picture of his choosing. And the other thing was they gave him complete control. That was something that he bargained hard for. And he got final cut, meaning the studio was going to have no say. That's it's relatively common these days, although it's become increasingly less so, I think, in the last year or two because of the budgets. But we have essentially with Wells the beginning of the evolution of, of the auteur and uh, the you know the the sort of genius in the medium and i think it's very important that at the time that he was coming out there he was all of 23 or 24 and you mentioned wonderkin i think part of fitzgerald's what got fitzgerald's eye on him was a, maybe jealousy's not the right word but nostalgia yeah nostalgia of uh, fitzgerald was his whole sense of self-worth was so wrapped up in um, early success. You know, you can find all kinds of quotes where he talks about, I was one of the 
10 youngest people in my class at Princeton. And just the idea that uh, somebody that was in their early 20s could be could come out of the gate and be such a hit. So I think there's I think there's that's part of the attraction to it. Wells was a threat to the studio system and to the control of the Louis B. Mayer and, you know, all the people that were running the uh, the systems. It, it boggles my mind in some ways that this story isn't talked about more. I, I did a quick run through as many Wells biographies, and there are a ton of them. And I could only find one that even mentions this, doesn't even mention the story by title, but just mentions Pat Hobby. And it, it sort of strikes me that this story doesn't get as much get as much interest in Wells scholarship. And I think part of that, again, reflects the fact that people just sort of assume that the Pat Hobby stories are really don't yield any value of, of close reading. But you can read the story for as a sort of anatomy or a dissection of celebrity. Yeah, Wells never appears. Wells yeah. is never in the story. He's talked about. And he's famous for one thing, more than even being known for being a genius. He's known for the fact that he's got a beard. We're we're hoping to do a piece in next year's Fitzgerald Review by a colleague of ours named Cam Cobb, who's a great guy, and he did a deep dive on and into the background of Wells in '39 when all of this is happening, and he discovers that you mentioned the uh, Luella uh, Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons and those gossip columnists. They were obsessed with the fact that Orson Welles had a beard and uh, that he grew a beard in 1939 for, for Heart of Darkness. The gossip columns, that's, that could be another podcast altogether. I've done a, a deeper dive into Sheila Graham and Fitzgerald. And there's about 12 columns where Sheila Graham is promoting Fitzgerald, for lack of a better term, and talking about what he's doing. My favorite so far, I just have to get this in, is that she reported that he wanted to write a script uh, for The Wizard of Oz with the Marx Brothers. But you're the man I've been dreaming of. What do you eat before you go to bed? I am obsessed now. I would love to have, I would love to read that. I want to see that movie more than anything else in the entire world. Is it true you're getting a divorce as soon as your husband recovers his eyesight? There's also the, the, the column where Graham reports on a dinner party that Fitzgerald and Harold uh, Mankiewicz and Harpo Marx and I think the, the Selznick. The yeah, producer yeah. are at, and which is just kind of fascinating reading because Fitzgerald says that producers in Hollywood are like little boys you know, who own the football and nobody else can play unless the producer wants them to play. The writers can't play, right. the directors, uh, the actors, no one else can. Fitzgerald was furious because the one screen credit he got in that 37 to 39 period was on a movie called Three Comrades. And he went toe-to-toe with, it was Herman Mankiewicz's younger brother, Joseph. And, um, you know, there's a famous letter that probably was not sent where, uh, I mean, it's just very sad to read because you can tell Fitzgerald's feelings are deeply, deeply hurt. And he, 
you know, basically ends the letter saying, you know, I, I am a good writer. Mm -hmm. And he was irate that producers would come in and change the work of writers. Now, it, it's funny because when the Fitzgerald revival started in the early 50s and people became aware of that story, all of a sudden, Joseph Mankiewicz, whose late career by that point, he's being besieged by biographers who are saying, how could you have done this to F. Scott Fitzgerald? And he finally lost his temper in the late 60s. And there's a there's a big quote that he comes back with. And he says, uh, I personally have been attacked as if I spat on the American flag because it happened once that I rewrote some dialogue by F. Scott Fitzgerald. But indeed, it needed it. The actors among them, Margaret Sullivan, absolutely could not read the lines. It was very literary dialogue, novelistic dialogue that lacked all the qualities required for screen dialogue. The latter must be spoken. Scott Fitzgerald wrote very bad spoken dialogue. Faulkner seems to have been able to do it. Faulkner was able to, you know, his screenplays do not read like the Yachnopatafa novels. And Fitzgerald just, I think he, he, he may have been so much a product of the silent era that he just could not do it. There is a great article that came out in the New Yorker about 11 or 12 years ago by Arthur Crystal that I think is probably the most salient piece on Fitzgerald in Hollywood where he talks about the, the technique that a, a lot of modernists, quite frankly, struggled to adapt to. And the point that he makes is that a script is a blueprint. Mm -hmm. The writer is just supplying an outline. And it is the director that visualizes and establishes the scene in collaboration with the actors, obviously. And that's, again, why Wells was such a reviled figure in a lot of ways, because he was the actor, the producer, the writer. I mean, we make fun of the auteur thing now. If you ever see parodies of movies where they'll say written by, starring, produced by, blah, blah, blah. And that's a, that's a takeoff on the auteur. And of course, Wells's most famous movie is very controversial. And this is the whole premise of the, of the movie that's out now about Herman Mankiewicz. Um, is that Wells co-wrote, is the best we can say, Citizen Kane um, with Mankiewicz. Well, this is all, this gets back to Pauline Kael. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pauline Kael, the, the famous New Yorker critic, was the first to really propose that Mankiewicz had much more to do with Citizen Kane than Wells had. We're actually only about two months away from the 50th anniversary of that essay, and that's a that's a really fascinating piece to read, because at the time Mankiewicz was completely forgotten. He had he had died in the. I mean, what's interesting is all three of these people: Mankiewicz, Orson Welles, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, kind of kind of go through the same cycle. Mm -hmm. They start off young, they have great promise, they have very early success. And then they're hobbled by alcoholism and, and in Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald's case, early death. Mankiewicz died relatively young in his mid-50s. But of course, then we have Orson Welles who lived out, depending on who you want to reference, you know, Peter Bogdanovich would disagree with us. But, you know, it's generally accepted by 85 when Orson Welles died at the age of 70 or so that he was long out of it. <laughs> I, I discovered today a heavy metal album in which Orson Welles provides the narration. One of the strangest ever.
was met at the gate of Hades by the guardian of the lost souls, the keeper of the unavenged. We were joking in previous ones about the commercials that he would make, but this beyond belief. I mean, he makes Citizen Kane, he makes the Magnificent Ambersons, and he's working on his third film, uh, It's All True. And, and my, my Orson Welles studying friends will, will correct me, uh, I'm quite sure. And then he's out. I mean, he's out of Hollywood. He's, I mean, uh, Magnificent Ambersons is basically taken away from him and recut. And then the the films that he's making after that, they take years in some instances. The the Chimes at Midnight, his Macbeth are made in Europe and he's he will take these acting roles to make money or he'll take the commercials with Gallo Wine and, you know, to, to do uh, Touch of Evil, The Lady from Shanghai, uh, Chimes at Midnight. You, you mentioned the Pauline Kael article and there, there was a passage in here that I wanted to point out because you'll appreciate this. She quotes John O'Hara's review of Citizen Kane. This is in March 1941. So this is three months after Fitzgerald died. And of course, John O'Hara and F. Scott Fitzgerald were very close friends. I think I think O'Hara gave Fitzgerald a lot of comfort. So you can see the parallel that O'Hara draws between Wells and Fitzgerald. He says, you know, that Citizen Kane was famously hampered by William Randolph Hearst's effort to quash the movie because it, it was a, a, a sort of an attack on him. But uh, O'Hara writes, uh, my intention is make you want to see this picture, if possible, to make you wonder why you are not seeing what I think is as good a picture as was ever made. And aside from what it does not lack, Citizen Kane has Orson Welles. It is traditional that if you are a great artist, no one gives a damn about you while you're still alive. Wells has had plenty of that. He got a tag put to his name through the Mars thing. He means the, you know, the War of the Worlds broadcast, just as Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote better than any man in our time, got a jazz age tag put to his name. I say if you plan to have any grandchildren to see and to bore, see Orson Welles so you can bore your grandchildren with some honesty. There has never been a better actor than Orson Welles. I just got finished saying there's never been a better actor than Orson Welles, and I don't want any of your lip. That's quite a review. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the movie Mank is making the same point that Mankiewicz was a genius himself. And in fact, one of the reviews of that movie, I think it was in the Washington Post, came out and said, you know, we're kind of fed up with the troubled genius. You know, stories about talented men who can't quite realize their talent because the system destroys them. So I think there are some really fascinating correspondences that can be drawn through all three of these guys, which brings us back to the story, because I think you read Pat Hobby and Orson Welles, and you, you want you want to believe that Fitzgerald is um, ragging on Orson Welles in the story, but I have to believe that's not really the case. No, I mean, I think he's ragging on uh, the reaction of old Hollywood right. to, to Welles, yeah. because the uh, studio executive... Uh, the old studio executive who Pat tries to get a pass. The, the the whole story hinges on on Pat Hobby not being able to get onto the studio a lot. He doesn't have a job uh, for this particular studio. All he wants is 
to be able to go into the studio, eat the food, borrow money from people he knows. Hit on some of the tourists and the actresses. So he's he he gets a ride with the with the who is the executive? Jack Burners. And he I'll, you know, he's he's saying, I'm not like this Wells fellow. I believe in Hollywood. I believe in the system. I just want to be, you know, it's like I want to pass into this cathedral. And he, he does sort of yeah. point up to the fear that Wells is going to just ruin everything for the, the system that's built up, the, the MGM system. And it's that word system that I think is important. I, I actually misspoke. I think the executive you're referring to is Mr. Marcus, who's the guy that- Mr. Marcus. He has a, he has a heart attack the minute he sees Pat he thinks it's Orson Welles. The The whole joke of the story is Pat needs to borrow money and there's a makeup artist who insists he'll only let him money if he can put a fake beard on him because he thinks Pat has a resemblance to Orson Welles. So they put this fake beard on and then he drives him around the studio in a car with a piece of cardboard on the windshield that says Orson Welles just to see people's reaction and Mr. Marcus spots him and has a heart attack. It's often said that Pat is the comic dupe, that Fitzgerald was almost a sadist in putting him through some of the physical pratfalls he goes through. There's a sto- one of the stories called Pat Hobby does his bit. He actually gets run over by a car being a stuntman. They force him to be a stuntman. But there's a there's a passage in this story that I think really gives us a sense of what Wells might have represented to somebody like Pat the you know the real life Pats of the of the Hollywood system but also by extension maybe Fitzgerald feeling that at 42 or 43 that the next generation of artists were already supplanting him and it goes like this it says Pat's psychology was oddly that of the masters and for the most part he was unworried even though he was off salary but there was one large fly in the ointment. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a loss of identity due to reasons that he did not quite understand, though it might have been traced to his conversation. A number of people began to address him as Orson. You know, we're not too far from a period where Fitzgerald at one point wrote Gingrich, who said, we can only do one story a month of yours. And Fitzgerald wrote him back and said, what if we put it under a pseudonym because I'm tired of Duff Scott Fitzgerald? So I think he felt an identity crisis of his own, even though you could argue that he suffered that his entire career, but certainly intensely in this final stage. Well, it's he was hampered so much at this at having only one real outlet for his fiction. Uh, in the magazines. And one of the wonderful things about actually subscribing to a digital edition of Esquire is you get access to the archive, which includes everything, including letters in. And I think in the the July issue, 1940, I have to recheck, there's a letter in. It's like, why do you have so much F. Scott Fitzgerald in Esquire? Why are you doing so much of this? Quick aside, I don't take much credit for that because uh, the letters in for Snows of Kilimanjaro uh, by Ernest Hemingway are also negative about that story. Uh, so maybe maybe Gingrich took a perverse pleasure in just picking the negative yeah. uh, 
letters to print. The crack up got negative audience reaction too. I mean, some of the letters back to them basically telling Fitzgerald, quit your bitching. He's ahead of his time. I mean, with the crack up, he's he's ahead of his time. And just like Wells is ahead of his time. Uh, and you mentioned Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Uh, the the Wells revival really begins in the 60s and 70s with the the new sort of maverick Hollywood director Bogdanovich, Warren Beatty, um, uh, Roman Polanski, all of all of whom are romanticizes auteurs as well. I think what's happening right now in history is this dismantling of the myth of the auteur, because uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast. You must remember this, but they did a fabulous entire season on Peter Bogdanovich's wife, Polly Platt, who in the middle of filming the uh, last picture show, he left his wife for Sybil Shepherd. I mean, this is all 50 years ago as well, but the whole point of the podcast is that Polly Platt, had a creative contribution to all of his movies that has not been acknowledged. And that for all that we talk about art being the vision of a singular creative genius, there are always networks of collaborators back there. I mean, Maxwell Perkins is a perfect example. It's so much easier when we talk about a piece of art to wanting one focus one individual that we can put everything on to say that the the genius of this is responsible for one man. Perkins, yeah, you know, is a perfect example. Great Gatsby would not be what it is without Perkins' suggestions. Thomas Wolfe, without Max Perkins cutting the material, would not be who he is. Uh, Albert Erskine with with uh, yep. Faulkner and and Robert Penn Warren. And there, there are other relationships where those those editorial interventions change our perceptions or maybe mislead us about who those people are. You know, there's a lot of revision going on now about the relationship between Raymond Carver and Gordon Lish. Right. And Lish's sort of severe uh, editing of Carver, which he came to resent immensely. So this idea works both ways, but I think one of the thing, the romanticizing of the visionary genius overlooks is that no matter what media we're talking about, there's always a system behind it. Right. There's always some kind of means of production. And I think most critics would argue that one of the reasons we emphasize the genius is because we're far less comfortable talking about the system of of publishing or the system of filmmaking. And of course, it takes a whole hype machine to get it out there and establish somebody as a as a as a creative genius. That's a that's a narrative line that is put out there. It's it's a simple narrative line. It's it's the same it's the same thing when you're you're teaching an undergraduates and and they want to look at a piece of literature is black or white, that, you know, a character is completely one thing or not the other. I, I have to say it's, it's the older I get, the more ambiguity is a constant companion, <laughs> as it were. People are big fans of the Coen Brothers movie, Barton Fink, which is the takeoff on uh, Clifford Odette's. Right. And it, 
features about the most savage parody of William Faulkner that you'll ever see. But those types of movies, I think, Mm -hmm. at the same time that they want to make ironic the myth of the genius, they also end up celebrating it as well. And and in some ways, I think Fitzgerald, the understanding of him in Hollywood was has been hampered by the self-perpetuating myth that he helped create that Hollywood didn't appreciate his particular talents and again maybe they just weren't suited for the for the for the medium I struggle with that because I think the dialogue in Pat Hobby is funny as hell there are exchanges in there that are so back and forth and that really have the tone of hard-boiled comedy. I think that he just resented having to be, almost unconsciously, that he so much resented being having to work in those conditions that he couldn't just look at it as a paycheck and just say, I'm just going to crank it out. There is a talent to writing comedy that is not as appreciated as the the talent for writing tragedy or more to the point melodrama. One of my favorite points about Fitzgerald Hollywood is he's one of the many screenwriters that was brought in to work on Gone with the Wind and only had one line of dialogue that survived filming, which was It's Cold in Richmond by Ashley Wilkes. I cannot stand Gone with the Wind. I just, uh, my liberal Southernism will not allow me to to watch Gone with the Wind anymore. But it is hard to write funny. It is hard to, it is a difficult thing to get humor on the page. And Fitzgerald did, was able to do that. And maybe he discounted it too much. I think it's, I think he's a funnier writer than Hemingway was. Oh yeah, Hemingway struggled with comedy. I mean, when, I mean, you look at something like Torrance of Spring, Faulkner even, Faulkner, when he would try comedy, it got black real quick. I mean, oh, real quick, yeah. real quick. The Snopes, any, you know, it's, I find the Hamlet hilarious when Ike Snopes falls in love with the cow. Yeah. Because as I pointed out to my students when I tried to teach this once and they were horrified that Ike Snopes was having sexual relations with the cow, they said, it's not a real cow. So, you know. But it is dark, dark, dark humor on Faulkner's part. It's a bit dark on Fitzgerald's part in the Pat Hobby stories. Yeah, and I think that, that, but that satirical edge, I mean, that, again, that becomes the defining way that, uh, I mean, I would make this argument. If you didn't have the precedent of Pat Hobby, which in turn influences Bud Schulberg and with the what makes Sammy run, you, I'm not sure you would have the... Um, the what's the later movie with Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster about the PR oh, guy? Oh, Sweet Smell, Sweet of, Smell Success. of Success. Oh, that's a good movie. And then, you oh, know, the, the other novel slash movie that Pat Hobby really looks to me, looks forward to is Michael Tolkien's The Player, which, you know, became mm-hmm. the Robert Altman film in, in 1992. Speaking of another auteur. Yeah, exactly. Here. And, a, and uh, one that has like, well, uh, like Wells, a very, you know, a very up and down filmography. So it's, it's it's an interesting argument about the whole notion of of what makes a work 
really tick. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Fitzgerald, his sense of comedy and the the lightness of the slapstick that he puts Pat through, I think a lot of that came from vaudeville. I think a lot of it came from his exposure to the theater. And I, I agree completely that even in those early stories, there's a lot of comedy there that right. that just doesn't get respected as much because we all love those transcendent melancholy passages that that he's known for there's one line and i i don't know who said it originally but it's something that that it's always stayed with me is that comedy is tragedy happening to someone else and it is violent it is right it is vaudeville it is the it is the three stooges it's curly getting hit by hammer is funny how funny was it to Curly? Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, some of the, the, one of the big controversies about the Pat Hobby is how much we're supposed to feel for Pat Hobby because I think when you have an anti-hero that is the butt of so many jokes and gets so degraded and is not a sympathetic character except for moments when when there's these little flashes. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald was very adamant at one point, the brother of his secretary, Francis Ring, was adapting the the Pat Hobby stories, wanted to do a stage play of them. And here's Fitzgerald, what he said about Pat. He said, uh, this series is characterized by a really bitter humor and only the explosive situations and the fact that Pat is a figure almost incapable of real tragedy or damage saves it from downright unpleasantlessness. The play should attempt to preserve some of this flavor. It's the only thing actually new about the original conception. And so I think that the idea was that it's not real tragedy. You know, and there were other stories where in writing with Gingrich, he basically said, Pat, he's hapless. He's not a villain. So I don't think he's as dark as the guy in in the player who ends up killing the writer, which is probably the most famous image of Hollywood's sense of the persecuted writer. But honestly, what could matter less in Hollywood than the death of a writer? You really get a sense of... Uh, like you were saying, like a generation that established Hollywood, established the movies, getting pushed out the door. And there's that passage in there where he actually refers to the Charlie Chaplin gang where somebody walks in the front door of a <laughs> of a packed to the gills building and somebody has to fall out the back door because there's just no space for him anymore. Well, if you want to talk about auteur, Chaplin is perhaps the first. I don't remember when The Great Dictator was... Well, that would have been 1940 as well. It was 1940 as well, but then he's in self-imposed exile in Switzerland and towards the end of his life because of his socialist communist sympathies or supposed uh, sympathies as well. But, you know, he resists changing as 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 much as anyone. Uh, it's only when you get modern prob, uh, modern times and the great dictator that he actually is yeah. moving to sound. And that's that's late for everybody else. Well, it raises an important question about the nature of genius. Uh, the reality is, is most geniuses only have one Citizen Kane or one great dictator, maybe even one great Gatsby in them. And, you know, we quoted the Fitzgerald's line about from uh, 100 False Starts before about, you know, the reality is, is most of us writers only have one story and we just crank out variations of them. And so, you know, it's a way of measuring 
again, this idea of, is it better to be a one-shot genius or to be a consistent producer? And the crazy thing with Fitzgerald is kind of the whole point of this podcast we're trying to make is he really was much more of a consistent producer with the short story than then we want to give him credit book for because we're so invested in that idea of him being the Icarus figure and flying too close to the sun. Right. It's when you go Fitzgerald and the great Gatsby and you dismiss tender as a night and you dismiss the side of paradise. And you, I think you probably argue more eloquently than anyone I know for the beautiful and damn, although there are multitudes of flaws in that novel. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great novel by any means, but it, it has its historical importance. And I think it, it illuminates a type of narrative about wealth and money and youth that isn't glamorous. Again, those are anti-heroes as well. I would urge people who have not looked at the Pat Hobby stories in a while to, to maybe dip into them. They're very, very easy reads. I mean, you can, uh, you can knock all 17 out in... You know, right. an hour. It's not like reading Tolstoy, and it's not. Yeah, there aren't uh, there aren't uh, Russians with five different names that you have to remember. exactly. And it's it's usually like it builds to a gag. It's there's a gag. It builds to the gag. It's it's like reading an extended yeah. joke. Yeah, it it really in a lot of ways it kind of reminds me of you could you could envision these being Saturday Night Live skits. It would have been fascinating. Uh, if if the play version, the stage version had ever happened, you know, the actor Edward Everett Horton, who owned a ranch called Belly Acres where Fitzgerald stayed, um, he's remembered today as the narrator of fractured fairy tales that you and I grew up on. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. That's capital P-I-double-G-S. Yes, yes, of course. But, you know, he was a confidant of Fitzgerald's, and he wanted to play Pat Hobby in the stage version. So people in Hollywood were aware of these stories, and I think they looked at them with a bit of amusement, a bit of trepidation. Again, I would argue that they have had a very decisive influence, maybe much more so than The Last Tycoon. I don't see a whole lot of uh, movies or or uh, miniseries that want to uh, celebrate studio executives these days. The only one I could think of is is sort of the Coen Brothers spiritual sequel to Barton Fink, which is Hail Caesar. Yeah. Which is it's the same studio yep. now in the 1950s instead of in the late 30s. The satirical edge is completely off that that film. And you know, I think it says something about the lack of the satirical edge. That I had completely forgotten about that movie until you mentioned it. It's so far off the off the Hollywood radar. Well, if we were going to rate this on our scale of one to ten Zeldas, what would you give it, Robert? I'm going to give it seven Zeldas because I think in what it sets out to do and in its execution, it works um, because it is not. It is not a rich boy. It is not a diamond as big as the Ritz, although the satirical elements in diamond as big as the Ritz as well. But for what it is, it works. Uh, And I think that you have to grade on sort of intention and execution. And that's, that's what, you know, why I would give it uh, maybe higher than I would give to, uh, the Lees of Happy that I gave to Lees of Happiness, or I Got Shoes, or Gretchen's Forty Winks. I definitely think that 
out of all 17 of the Pat Hobby stories, this one is the most historically important because of the Wells connection that it that it offers us a window into what's going on in Hollywood in uh, you know in the fall and spring of 1939 spring of 1940 i'd probably go with seven too i think that uh you know one of the things we didn't talk about is how the story ends and pat rushes off after mr marcus has his heart attack because he's afraid of you know being blamed and it ends with this image of him and his fake beard lined up at the bar with other extras in costume and you get this marvelous image of most workers in the Hollywood factory being perfectly content with their anonymity. And that's a, that to me is an interesting statement about labor and about the Hollywood worker. And so in that sense, I see it as a sort of, sort of a a rejection of the, the idea of the Hollywood star. So I think he's got some creative angles on, on things here. So I'd give it seven too. The other thing we do is we draw from the magic hat and uh, Robert, this time the, uh, the choice is yours. So dip in there and what are we going to talk about in episode seven? At your age. Oh, okay. Actually, I have been writing about this story uh, recently. So, uh, it, it'll it'll be an interesting discussion. So we thank you once again for your patience, and uh, we look forward to uh, speaking with you in about three weeks. Take care, Robert. All right. Take take care. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence.